Welcome to Living in the Light and an introduction to today's message by our Bible teacher and Graham Lotz. When the day of the Lord comes, that's it. And God wants all to come to repentance. He doesn't want any to perish. So he's patient. Thanks for joining us today for Living in the Light with Anne Graham Lotz. Today is part one in a message from Joel chapter two titled, Keep Watching the Hour because he is the master of perfect timing. Here's Anne. You know, the North Carolina coast is very rugged and there are all sorts of outer banks. There are undersea sandbars and rocks. It's called the graveyard of the Atlantic because so many ships who've gone by North Carolina have crashed in those treacherous waters. So all along our coast, there are lighthouses. The most famous one would be Cape Hatteras, the lighthouse on Cape Hatteras. And I expect you're familiar with it because when hurricanes come, they sort of measure it by Cape Hatteras. And the Cape Hatteras lighthouse stands 210 feet tall. It looks like a barber's pole, you know, black and white striped. And it was built years ago. It has never gone out. Not even during the Civil War was it allowed to go out. And the beam from that light can be seen for 20 miles. And the reason for lighthouses is because the the purpose is to shine the light so that the ships that are passing know where they are in the darkness, the treachery, the storm, the waves, that they'll know where they are and they can navigate those treacherous waters and get to safety. And as I thought about the lighthouses, I thought about the judgment that's coming. There is a light in the darkness. The difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2, by the way. Chapter 1 is really the harbingers. It's a warning of the judgment to come. Chapter 2 is the judgment that's come. All right, so it's just a little bit of a difference. But as we talk about the judgment, the light in the darkness that will help us navigate the treacherous waters and the storms and the things that are coming is the fact that all of this is evidence God is moving. So people ask me, you know, and you see God moving in the world. And I know what they want me to say is, boy, I see churches packed and I see people repenting and I see the gospel going out and I see people coming to Christ. And and they think that's God moving, which of course it is. Praise God. He does move in that way. But sometimes when God moves, it's not pleasant at all. And we just don't think that some of the things we're seeing in our nation are the movement of God. Some of the things happening in the world that were explained by the other speakers today, we don't think that that's movement of God, but it is. The world is not falling apart. It's falling into place. God is arranging all the pieces to just bring them together at the feet of Jesus. So that's the light in the darkness. So keep watching the hour. And this is the hour for, I believe judgment is here and it's going to get worse. But the light in the darkness is the fact that God is moving. And so in verse one, it says to blow the trumpet. And sound the alarm, get people's attention. In the olden days, as I understand it, that shofar, they would take it up to the wall over the temple. And when they blew the shofar, it didn't matter if it was in harvest time or whenever it was, when the trumpet blew, people would come in because they knew it was an emergency. That it was the real thing, that this is not a drill, this is not a practice run, this is a real emergency, you're to come. And so he says, blow the trumpet. In verse 1, he says, sound the alarm. Same idea that's alerting us to the fact that I believe God is moving. In 1969, Hurricane Camille was threatening the Gulf Coast. I don't know if some of you lived down there, and I know you would remember. But it was aiming for uh, the state of Mississippi. And so the chief of police went out. There was a 
three-story apartment complex right on the coast. So he went out to make sure everybody was gone and evacuated, but he found when he knocked on the door, up above him there was a balcony, and there were all these people up there, and he said, you've got to leave, you, you know, the hurricane is coming. And they were drinking, part. they said, no, this is a hurricane party. We've all gathered, we're going to watch the hurricane. And the chief of police said, you've got to get out of here. And they said, the only way we're going to get out of here is if you arrest us and drag us out. And he said, well, I'm not going to do that. But he said, I am going to take your names. And so he took their names, he said, because I'll notify the next of kin if something happens to you. So 10.15 that night, Hurricane Camille hit. And it was past Christian, that's the name of the town. Isn't that interesting, past Christian? Mississippi, Hurricane Camille, 205 mile an hour winds, the strongest winds of any hurricane ever. They said the raindrops hit with the force of bullets and it hit past Christian and it passed through and the next morning nothing was left of the apartment complex or the 20 people who had the hurricane party. So I'll tell you that a little bit like the Titanic. You know, the warnings can go out and we can do our best to sound the alarm, to blow the trumpet. But it's up to you to respond. I believe this is the hour to respond. God doesn't promise us the next hour. He doesn't promise us the next day. We need to respond to what he's saying and whatever he puts on your heart. So when he says, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, the whole idea that we have an emergency. And verse 1 says, the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. It's on us. And I just want to make it clear that you know, prophecy has patterns so that one prophecy can have multiple fulfillments, but there is always the ultimate fulfillment. So I don't want to not be accurate because the day of the Lord in prophetic scripture always, always, always points to the end of the end. It always points to the very end of the age. And specifically that seven-year period of tribulation at the end of that, the battle of Armageddon, at the climax of that when Jesus comes back and he slaughters all of his enemies and he puts the bad guys down. You know, That is the, the great, terrible, dreadful day of the Lord. But there are other fulfillments of that. Joel was speaking, the day of the Lord is close. So for him, either it was the Assyrians coming in to take Israel or the Babylonians coming in to take Judah. And he was warning them that the day of the Lord, a time of accountability, a time of reckoning, a time when God's patience runs out, it's here on us. And I believe with all my heart that the word that he was giving the people of his day is God's word to the people of our day for this hour. The day of the Lord is upon us. It's close at hand. And severe judgment is coming. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But So just that one phrase can have multiple fulfillments. If you look out at the Blue Ridge Mountains in the morning, and they're so beautiful, I love to see them. They look like a blue scallop of mountains, don't they? And they look one-dimensional. But if you drove up to them, you would find that in between those scallops, <laughs> there, are, there can be miles separating the mountains from each other. So one prophecy, you can read it, and it looks one-dimensional, that it would have one fulfillment, but you get closer and you think, well, that was fulfilled when the Assyrians took northern kingdom of Israel. And then you say, oh, no, that was fulfilled when the Babylonians came in and took Judah. That was fulfilled when the Romans took Jerusalem. And, but the ultimate fulfillment is at the end of the age, which is where I believe we are. I believe we're looking at the ultimate great and terrible day of the Lord. But it's going to build up to that as God, and, and maybe it will be, simultaneous with judgment on America or maybe the judgment on America will come first for all the reasons that have been given you. 
But the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming. But I would show you the light in the darkness because it's the day of the Lord. It's the Lord's day. He's in charge. He's in control. And listen to me. This is the Lord who loves you. This is the Lord who's coming to save you. This is the Lord that laid down his life for you. It's the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, okay? So when God is moving, he's moving in judgment on the bad guys. But if you've been to the cross and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the judgment has already been poured out on him and you won't be held guilty for your sin in in that way. We may still, you know, face some hard things because of the judgment that falls on the just and the unjust, like the rain. Like it was pointed out to me by a friend that the 10 plagues on Egypt, they were for the bad guys in a sense to force Pharaoh to let God's people go. But the first three were experienced also by the Israelites and they were called sort of nuisance plagues. I think there were flies and locusts and things like that. And then the other seven, they affected the Egyptians, but they did not affect the Israelites. And so God may let us go through some nuisance plagues and then protect us maybe from some of the more severe things that are coming. I don't know, but I just know that I believe judgment is coming, but it's his day and he's in charge. So how many times do I watch the news at night or I get my headlines online or, you know, I read something and I think, God, why don't you do something? You don't need a committee to investigate. You don't need somebody to report to you. You see it when it happens. How can you stand it? Why don't you do something? And his answer, I am. That's the day of the Lord. He's going to hold them accountable. Isaiah 13 says, wait for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger. Ezekiel 30, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Amos 5 says, don't long for the day of the Lord, which was um, sort of a comeuppance for me because I find myself sometimes longing for the day of the Lord. (laughs) I want the bad guys to get it. Somebody needs to draw the line. I feel like if God would just strike a few of them dead, maybe they would pull back a little bit and not be so brazen and they're evil and they're wickedness. And so I want judgment to fall. And Amos says, don't long for the day of the Lord. And one reason is because when the day of the Lord comes, that's it. And God wants all to come to repentance. He doesn't want any to perish. So he's patient, you know, just delaying so that people will come to repentance and won't come under that final judgment. But the judgment is coming. God is moving, and he's moving slowly. And verse 2 says, like the dawn spreading. I don't know if you ever watched the dawn come. I love to watch the dawn come. I love to get up at the beach, and I walk early, and I love to see the light coming up over the water, and then you know it gets brighter and brighter. I love to sit up and watch the light come up over the mountains. It's not quite the same because you can't see the sun rise. By the time it hits the, the peak, it's already up. But, um, but just that same idea of the light that comes slowly but surely and thinking of God's judgment. It's like the dawn spreading. He... He judges, in a sense, slowly, progressively. And in Second Kings 17 and 18, it tells about Assyria besieging Samaria. And this was the northern kingdom of Israel. And God had warned the northern kingdom of Israel, if you don't repent, judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Repent, turn to me. And they became more defiant, more rebellious, more idolatrous. And so he sent the Assyrians to besiege Samaria. Do you know how long it took them to take the city? Three years. 
And I think God had them wait three years, giving opportunity. This was the hour for Northern Kingdom of Israel to say, oh my goodness, all the things the prophets have been telling us are true. We need to turn to God. We need to repent of our sin. But they became more defiant and they were just wiped off. Some people think those 10 tribes have just been completely destroyed. I don't because I, I believe they're, you know, God knows where they are, but, but the northern kingdom was eradicated. And then the southern kingdom in Second Kings 24, I believe it was, where Babylon came in to destroy Jerusalem or attacked. And that was when Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego were taken off in that first deportation. And do you know from that moment, from the first Babylonian attack to when Babylon actually came in and destroyed the city so not one stone was left on top of another and the temple was destroyed and all the people that were left were either slaughtered or taken into captivity. Do you know how long it was from that first deportation to the last? 22 years. God judging so slowly. Giving opportunity. He sent them prophets. He sent them messages. One after another, repent, turn to me. And they didn't. And then, I don't know if I can apply it this way, but I believe I can. I'm just going to try. Anyway, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And it was 40 years before the Romans came in and destroyed the city. And was God patiently waiting? What would have happened? I don't know about the theology of this, but what would have happened? If the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin had said, oh my goodness, we have crucified the Lord of glory. God, we're so sorry. What if they had led the entire nation in repentance of sin and put out their idols and humbled themselves before God? Would he have relented? Instead, they turned on the disciples and they persecuted the Christians and set out to destroy the early church and judgment fell in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed everything, wiped them off the map for about 2,000 years. And then there's another pause. And maybe I'm reading into it, but Revelation chapter 8, you know, all the judgments in Revelation come in a measured progressive way. So they're described as seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and then seven bowls of wrath. And the whole thing is that it's progressive, it's measured, and it's slow until you get to the bowls, and then they come out pretty fast. But the seventh seal, that then gives way to the first trumpet, the seventh seal is a period of silence. And you just wonder if it's a pause. And God is just giving planet Earth and all these little rebellious, profane, obscene, dust people opportunity to think about what they're getting ready to get into, to think about where they're headed, and to turn to him and repent of their sin. And of course they don't. And so the next thing that happens is the first trumpet. And then it just, the the judgment progresses all the way through until we have Armageddon and the return of Jesus. So God is very reluctant to judge. He judges slowly. It's like the dawn spreading, but just like the dawn, it's unstoppable. And there comes a tipping point when there's no reversing it. I don't believe we're there yet. God is stirring so many people to pray. And he's stirring so many people to look at this in a fresh way that I wonder if, at least for our nation, if there's opportunity to lessen the judgment or to delay the judgment or soften it in some way, you know. Or maybe he's just wanting you and me to be prepared for what's coming. 
so that we pray and we start sharing the gospel and we just work for him because we know the night is coming. And so it motivates us to just pour our lives out in obedience and sacrifice to him. So, so I don't know, but I know that once it reaches a certain point, then you can't stop it, just like the dawn spreading. So I would ask you, do you mistake his patience for toleration of sin? I think the world does. I think they think, well, you know, I got by with it yesterday, and I'm getting by with it today, and the whole culture is like this, and God doesn't care anymore. In fact, I'm becoming, you know, I'm doubting that there even is a God. I don't see evidence of him in anything. We've all evolved to this place, and we just have to make life, you know, the way we can make it. And, and all the while, God is in heaven. wonder, could I describe him this way with tears coming down his face? knowing what's coming if people don't wake up and turn to him, a God who loved them so much that he sent his own son to be their savior. And they plunge into the abyss of evilness and wickedness and rejection and rebellion and disobedience and provoke his wrath that will be final. So on 9-11, which I was reading again in Daniel 9, which my book, The Daniel Prayer, is based on powerful prayer that Daniel prayed while he was in captivity. His people were being held captive by the enemy. They were separated from God's place of blessing. And Daniel was reading the scripture and he saw a promise from God and he claimed that promise and he prayed that promise. It was like reverse thunder, you know, just praying God's word back to God. As a result, heaven was moved and his nation was changed. But this is what he said, speaking of the nation of Judah, In verse 13, he says, This disaster, meaning when the Babylonians came in and wiped out Jerusalem and the temple and Judah, and he was carried off into captivity, this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. And as a result of knowing that, Daniel poured out his heart in prayer. And God heard Daniel's prayer. Three years later, The people were set free by King Cyrus. They went back to Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, back to that place of God's blessing. So wonder what would happen if you and I would see what's going on that we have, like after 9-11, church is full. It looked like for a brief window of time we might have revival and then it was snatched from us. What if God's people called by God's name, would humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways, is there still opportunity that God would hear from heaven and forgive us and heal our land? You reverse that. Reverse that thunder and say, God, you said, you said of your people, that's me, would humble myself and pray and seek your face and turn from my wicked ways. God, you said you would hear my prayer and you would forgive my sin and you would heal America. So God, I hold you to your word. But you have to meet the conditions. This is the hour to meet the conditions of that promise. So God's judgment, he's moving surely, slowly, and severely. And the rest of this verses 2 through 10, they're describing the locust plague that we talked about last night. But it's not, it was a locust plague, but not really. It was like a parable showing Joel what the day of the Lord would be like. So let me go through it if I can. These are signs and indications that God is on the move. He's rising up. And this is what we see in our 
world today. Verse 2, he says it's dark. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. And darkness is the absence of light, right? So if light represents truth and goodness and righteousness and justice, then darkness is the opposite of those things. Darkness is, instead of truth, you have lies. And do we have lies today or what? And instead of righteousness, we have unrighteousness, all the wrong that's being done. And instead of justice, we have injustice. And instead of love, we have hate and anger and bitterness and division. And, you know, so it's a day of darkness. In verse 3, before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes, before them the land is like the Garden of Eden. Nothing escapes them. It's very detailed in its judgments. So I think it was Shakespeare that said, right, the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. Nothing is left out. Every level, every area, whether it's education or the economy or the environment or marriage or finances or military, every area of our nation or the world at this point for the end of the end times, every area is affected. It's detailed, and it's dreadful in verse 6. At the sight of the nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. That reminds me of how ISIS affects people. In the old days, when the Assyrians were coming towards a town, the town would commit suicide rather than submit to the Assyrians. That's how awful and dreadful they were. And now when ISIS is coming towards a town, it causes that same kind of panic and fear. All of us have seen the pictures of these little black robed people and their faces robed in black and their guns shooting up in the air. And I'm so sick of seeing them. And they look to me like they're demons. And I think they are demonic. Look at what they do. How could that come from anything except the devil? So dreadful. They're determined. In verse 7, it says... They charge like warriors, they scale walls like soldiers, they all march in line, not swerving from their course. They are systematic, they're organized, they're well-financed, they have a great military, they overcome all obstacles. They're deceptive. In verse 9, they rush upon the city, they run along the wall, they climb into the houses like thieves, they enter through the windows. And we think of the IRS scandal, we think of Benghazi, we think of, you know emails and the lies and the lies and the lies and lies that are spun to make us think it's truth and Jesus said three times in Matthew 24 do not be deceived do not be deceived do not be deceived and the best way you're not deceived you saturate yourself in the word of God and if you don't do that you will be deceived so we have to be intentional not to be deceived do something about it this is the hour to read your Bible this is the hour to saturate yourself in the truth because they're going to turn things so upside down so crazy that if you don't know what God's word says you may be sucked into some of that foolishness and they're destructive of the environment in verse 10 and this is when I say they God uses he can use an ISIS he can use some sort of invasion he can use whatever he chooses but in back of that is God. All of this can be orchestrated by some very wealthy billionaire up in some whatever with a little committee somewhere, I don't know. In back of him, in that committee, is the devil. And in back of him is God. God is moving. And that's the light in all of this, that God is not going to let this reach a point where we blow ourselves to smithereens or just annihilate the human race. God, God is working a plan. So God is on the move. That's the light. 
We trust God to know exactly what he's doing. And he's the master of perfect timing. And he's going to figure all this out. We don't have to. We just see the evidence that he's moving. But the destruction of the environment when it says the earth quakes, the earth shakes, there are cosmic disturbances. Jesus said in that time leading up to the great and terrible day of the Lord in Matthew 24, he says, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. That's a lunar eclipse. Stars will fall from the sky. And that's going to, I'm assuming, happen even more as the time draws near. Before Anne closes our time today in prayer, we hope you'll take advantage of the resources available, many of which are free, to help you in your walk with the Lord. Go to annegramlots.org. And we hope you'll join us again next week for part two in Anne's study in Joel. Keep watching the hour. Here's Anne. There is no question that God is moving in our world today. All indicators point to the same conclusion. The return of Jesus Christ to earth is very near. Think about it. Are you ready to meet God face to face?